0: Hello
1: and welcome to the Media Podcast, I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Harry and Meghan break up for good with the British tabloids, Disney's coronavirus response threatens to damage the reputation of the mouse, and Channel 4 try to woo advertisers with free use of their creative team. Plus, has the sun set for good on this year's Love Island, and in the Media Quiz, we play HBO or No, with the fresh shows landing on the latest big streaming launch. It's all to come in today's media podcast. First up, returning to the fray, the international editor of Deadline magazine, Jake Cantor is here. Hi, Jake.
2: Hi, I'm good. I did, you didn't ask well, me how I was. <laughs> I,
1: I wasn't, but, but you're right to answer as if I had, because it would have been more <laughs> polite. You've been tweeting, I noticed, about the grim news from Kevin Ligo this week. You reckon we could, reading between the lines, be about to see Love Island being axed?
2: Well, I mean, he's just done uh, Edinburgh TV uh, festival session over YouTube It's uh, part of a series of discussions that the TV controllers in the UK are having about coronavirus and what it's done to the industry. And I would say Kevin has delivered the most uh, starkly honest appraisal, uh, plain speaking um Uh, overview of what is happening at the moment and I mean it's it's not great as you would imagine and I think like you say one of the big casualties probably is going to be Love Island Um, he talked about the logistics of making it being very difficult you know the feasibility of actually flying 200 people over to Mallorca Uh, without them all being quarantined um, or just Mm. refused entry. Um, And then he sort of talked about the tone of the show at this time. You know, he used the phrase, you know, is it it a good thing to see uh, strangers slathering over each other (laughs) (laughs) at a time when we can't even go near each other in a park? Could be queasy viewing, but could be escapism as well, I guess. That's true. That's true, and it's a huge revenue generator for, for ITV, so it'll be a very tough decision. Um, he hasn't ruled it out completely, so there's still wiggle room that it might happen, but um, I would be surprised. I think he was kind of teeing up the nation for a Love Island free summer.
1: Yeah, Love Island wiggle room sounds like one of the spin-off shows on itv too. Uh, also <laughs> returning to his Professor Emeritus at City University, Professor Liz Howell. Hello, Liz hi uh you've been buried in research all week what are you working on
3: oh absolutely we do this survey research about um how many women experts are interviewed on news uh, programs six flagship news programs and it's really interesting but the, we've done a sort of few deep dives into the figures and it's fascinating but i just feel as if i've been so immersed in it i don't really know what else is going on so forgive me if i'm not really on top of the other stories i'll just have to really try Have you still got your
1: army of counters looking at the the quotient of female representation or is it literally you now sitting there with the VCR spooling back through everything?
3: (laughs) I wish. No, it's a really small but perfectly formed army. It's sort of SAS force, really. Uh, We have uh, student monitors, postgraduate student monitors who look at the programmes and write down every single person that's on the programme and categorise them as experts or non-experts and then we put it all together and work out the averages. And uh, we are actually... um, announcing this on the Woman's Hour programme on uh, Monday, May the 4th. What you do find is that, uh, yeah, male experts do go up at a certain point And uh, we've looked at why that is. And uh, I feel that the blame firmly lies with the very high proportion of, of men in government and government advisors. But uh, the actual figures will have to wait for Monday. But it, it is a story. It really is a story.
1: But coronavirus has had an impact, just to give us the headline.
3: Yes. It's also interesting is that... The story, just the narrative, changes as the months go on, and when uh, we get deeper into the story, um, and the story moves to hospitals and care homes and far more.
1: Okay, well, and finally, we have a third guest. I insist on it these days, just in case we lose one along the way remotely. Uh, but what a fine guest we have! CNN's media and entertainment reporter Frank Palotta, making his media podcast debut. Hello, Frank. Hi. How are you
4: on? Not bad, thank you. You're. In your parents' house? I'm in currently my mom's attic which is very, very interesting. (laughs) Last night I had to do my first uh, on air kind of like video interview and I had to do it for Mm. my mom's attic and I also had to use my mom's makeup. So it was very much a Norman Bates moment for me. And I was, you know, (laughs) it was was pretty good, you know? I I think it went pretty well. uh, And uh, you know, mother enjoyed it. So everything went well for me. How are you cutting
1: through the press release bullshit? when you aren't able to go and meet people face-to-face and work out what's really going on?
4: Luckily, I have a great bullshit detector, and I've had that for like six years now. So uh, the way you kind of just cut through it is, what what I've been telling people more and more lately is that, Anyone who kind of tells you this is exactly how things are going to go or exactly how things are not going to go, you got to be able to be very upfront and say that a lot of what we're going through right now is somewhat speculative. We're trying to figure out what the next step is for the movie theaters and the next step for big companies like Disney. And we have to really think about, you know, what is coming next. But no one is 100 percent sure. That's why it's important to have reporters and have media people really be able to you know, step up who have been doing this for a long time, like myself, who can be like, who can be very upfront to audiences and readers and say, you know, this is our best guess, This is our best estimates. This is what we're hearing from sources. Here's what we're thinking because this coronavirus pandemic is a game changer in every single way across media, the economy, the whole entire culture of the world. And it's important to kind of figure that out. So you have to cut through the press release by just being a good reporter is the short form of it.
1: Well, you talk about what might be happening next for Disney. Let's start this week by talking about what's happening now, uh, because the company has stopped paying more than 100,000 employees this week. Frank, most of those staff are in the States. Obviously, it does impact uh, their movie businesses across Europe and stuff at Disneyland Paris and stuff, but generally they're in the USA. What has the reaction been there to this announcement. They are an enormous corporation and they're taking government assistance to socialize, laying off their staff effectively through furlough.
4: Well, if you think about it this way, Disney is made up of four major units. It's media networks, which is ABC, ESPN. Uh, It's theme parks slash consumer slash experience unit, which is mostly the parks and merchandising. It's studio entertainment, which is focused on obviously the films, the blockbusters like Marvel and Star Wars. And it's new DTC, which is direct to consumer, which is Disney Plus. 52% of that, 52% of the the revenues of its fiscal year last year was studio entertainment and parks, which have just been immensely hobbled by the coronavirus pandemic. So that means more than half of the company is just kind of halted right now. And then if you look at the media networks, ESPN's showing, you know, cherry spitting and NFL draft virtually. It's not showing NBA playoffs or the Masters or uh, Major League Baseball opening day. So Disney has been really kind of hobbled by this uh, pandemic as much as you know the rest of the economy and the rest of the world has too. But it's incredibly vulnerable, more so than other media networks like you know uh, NBC Universal, which is owned by Comcast, and media and uh, Warner Media, which is my parent company, which is owned by AT and T. Uh, that's because Disney has made itself uh, has created an empire, I should say from bringing people together for the last 95 years, packing theme parks, packing movie theaters. Social distancing makes that nearly impossible so that they've had to furlough. uh, The numbers have been everywhere between 40,000 employees to the report you're talking about, I believe was in Financial Times, which is closer to about 100,000. The number's not really distinct, but it's somewhere in that range to anyone whose, quote, job is not necessary at this time. And, you know, the market has been kind
1: of- and keeping the profits, isn't it? That's the accusation. You know, this isn't a company that is short of cash. They're able to spread around billions to buy Fox and Lucasfilm. Uh, Bob Iger's earning 900 times what the median Disney employee is. That's where the anger is coming from.
4: Yeah, I mean, let's be quite honest. Next, last year, Disney had seven $1 billion movies. You know, many people have been outspoken, as you said, about this. So yes, that's why people are kind of outraged about it as well, but also people are trying to figure out if Disney's gonna come back because, you know, Disney is a lifestyle brand for many people in the same way that Nike or Apple is. You know, people are also very curious about it. And at the same time, you know, people are sitting home right now watching Disney Plus and just thinking about, you know, Potentially getting out of the house with their kids to go back to a theme park or go see a Disney movie. So it's not just as cut it dry in terms of the financial. There's also this huge cultural uh, connection for many millions of people when it comes to Disney.
1: And that's a really interesting point. I mean, Liz, do you think that the Disney suite of brands and people's attachment to those now is so strong that in a sense, their PR doesn't matter? Like, like Apple, there are, you know, there have been stories about conditions in the Foxconn factories making Apple phones, but it hasn't damaged people's relationship with in the West with that brand. Do you think people just value Disney so highly that the PR can be put to one side?
3: Yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot in that. I mean, 28 million paying customers have been put on, um, with the new streaming channel. That's an awful lot of people straight off the bat. And there is this tremendous affection for Disney. I was on a board which had Disney shareholders way back in 1993. And they, they are, in my opinion and my experience, a, a very hard-nosed, um, company when it comes to business, which is quite unlike the sort of slightly schmaltzy image you have of Disney. But they do, manage to get away with that because there is this enormous public affection for them. Also, I think it's something to do with the structure of the company, as Frank said, it's it's very firmly divided into groups. And I can imagine their thinking is that they're not going to have the media side um, bailing out the. Um, the, the uh, hospitality side, which is very different. So that's one way they, they, they make their business work. I mean, the two are related, but they're different.
1: And Jake, do you understand the structure of Disney? Because <laughs> you report on this stuff too. And I mean, Bob Iger is now, I believe, the executive chairman. That's his job title. Is he really running it rather than Bob Chapek, who's supposed to be his successor? I mean, what's he still doing there?
2: Well, I think the idea is that they have some sort of handover period and Bob will eventually retire into the wings and and uh bob Iger, that is and well, bob uh, too yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll will, uh, assume you know total control i think that i think that's kind of the thinking behind that at the moment um but yeah i mean i would agree with everything that's been said i think disney has been storming it with disney plus uh, which has created a bit of a halo effect around the brand Um, But the reality is that it's been kind of disproportionately exposed to coronavirus because of the hulking physical business that it is. You know, it's got these huge theme parks and hotels um, and lots of people to pay. I think Abigail Disney, uh, the granddaughter of co-founder Roy Disney, um, uh, made some good points. She's been quite scathing about all of this. Uh, She said that uh, Disney needs to pay the people who make the magic happen and the company must do better. Uh, And I think when you've got the heir to the Disney fortune saying that, then something's wrong.
1: Frank, you're anticipating Disney's earnings uh, results on Tuesday. What what are you expecting to, to hear?
4: I think investors are going to be very eager to see just how deeply the company has been impacted by the coronavirus. And I think we're going to see Theme parks take a big hit. I think we're going to see studios take a big hit. I don't think there's anything super surprising there. You got to remember that Disney has been dealing with this as a global company since the coronavirus appeared in in China. I, they've been dealing with this a lot longer than before their domestic parks went down. I think also you're going to see them really kind of push forward on uh, how well Disney Plus has been doing. I mean, it's crossed 50 million subscribers. It's done that in just about 5 months and they originally their uh, their initial projections were about 60 to 90 by the end of 2024 they're almost there so i think they're going to really push towards the future here but i also think they're going to do a lot of you know saying you know this is a 500 year storm this is something that hit them after their biggest year ever and i think you know it should be noted that it's not like people are suddenly bored of disney this is something that hit the company Out of nowhere. It's not like people were not going to the parks or not going to see Disney movies. They had to shut down because
1: of this crisis. Liz, uh, media professors like you up and down the country that are having young people approach them virtually, I guess now, and ask them whom they should apply to for a job. Where should they be sending their CV? Who should they be networking with? I mean, it's just an impossible scenario now, isn't it?
3: It's incredibly difficult. I mean, where, where do they go? My advice would be send it to absolutely everybody all the time. You just don't know who might be looking for somebody. It's a bit of an emergency who may be hiring because one of their staff isn't able to perform in some way. But on the other hand, I think that for example, one, one of my um, students is, is now working at Lidl, and I think that's probably a very sens- sensible move in the short term because it's not going to bounce back very quickly and it's gonna take mm. time. It will bounce back because media is so, so important. And that's one thing that's really been demonstrated. I mean, quite frankly, in, in news journalism, which is my speciality, the news has become absolutely vital. I don't know what viewing figures are, but from everybody I know in the news business is saying that ratings are through the roof for news programs. It, they are almost like, well, they are key workers. If you're a, a news journalist your child's entitled to a place at school because you're a key worker there's part of me that thinks we sort of ought to clap for broadcast journalists on a Thursday night as well but that will never happen let's be honest but it is so important and, and in a way what's happening is that, that the importance of this profession is, is being established more than ever so I do think the jobs will be there in the future but it's just this like everything else it's on hold isn't it it's so difficult
1: yeah cuts and furloughs announced in the last few weeks as well from Bauer and Condé Nast uh, Uh, The team I work with at Dennis Publishing as well, a Podcast, I know that they've got some furloughs coming down the track as well. Um, Let's change channels now onto Channel 4, uh, who have offered out the use of their in-house creative team to make adverts for free. Uh, Jake, tell us, what are Channel 4 offering exactly?
2: Uh, Well, they're basically offering the services of 4Creative, which is a... award-winning team uh, behind some very memorable advertising campaigns such as channel fours uh, fantastic meet the Super, meet the superhumans paralympic uh, Paralympics promotion um, they're offering those services up to the value of about 20,000 pounds I think it's kind of a it's a smart idea to lure in some advertisers uh, and I presume keep some of the uh, full creative team in gainful employment um, because they're probably not very busy right now um, but which
1: brands really are going to want to use pre-existing footage or an in-house creative team for a channel, you know, when they're used to a world of agencies and creating their own copy?
3: I think it, I find this rather odd. I mean, when you see a lot of the adverts that are on at the moment, that they're already going for home footage and much cheaper sort of types of adverts are very effective in many ways. What is the attraction of, of the Channel 4 creative team to, to these people? It, it's almost as if that's not the sort of ad that we're going for at the moment. Also, if you look at something like um, ITV, in the 6.30 news in the break, there's this, this um, cooperation between BT and ITV telling you how to do tech, which is quite funny sometimes. It really works sometimes. Other times it's a bit you know, cringe, cringeworthy, but it does work. But it's so different from ads as we know them. So, I, I mean, I'm almost thinking, do do companies really want to have glossy ads at this time it's just well, not the style
2: i would counter that and say that you know from a creative from an editorial point of view we're hearing all of the major broadcasters now saying that audiences are tiring very quickly of the sort of the coronavirus look the zoom conference calls that we're seeing on television and i think suit i think they will that will be reflected in advertising ultimately you know TV commissioners are looking for big escapist content. And um, I think, ultimately, to differentiate themselves, um, companies like supermarkets will have to turn to some bigger ideas.
1: Frank, what what is the advertising break looking like over in the States at the moment? How has the lockdown affected the commercials people are seeing?
2: Uh,
4: well, there's a lot of, like... Commercials that people everything seemingly has a message about getting through this together pretty much everything from toilet paper companies to pharmacies like it's just it has this feeling of you went from selling you something to talking to you more about like what our companies are doing to get through this crisis at least from the commercials I've seen but it's funny because like. The other thing, too, is I'm watching a ton of streaming and so are a lot of other people, which you just don't see those ads at all. So there has been, you know, a a change and a shift. But that's what I've seen mostly is this kind of uh, message first, selling something later.
1: I mean, the big advertiser here in the UK, Jake, that's new is the government. Uh, We've seen uh, that the government's going to spend £35 million on newspaper advertising alone over the next three months as part of the COVID-19 information campaign. Do you think it's the right decision for them to target print uh it seems to be at the expense perhaps of other advertising mediums
2: uh i'm not sure it is i I think it's i think it's great that they're targeting print because that's revenue for newspapers and that is a good thing um but
1: who's buying a newspaper i mean who's going out and getting a physical newspaper we're being told only to go out and buy the essentials
2: that's true and, and newspaper circulation has suffered significantly as a result of what we're going through right now um but i don't think it's just solely print i mean both Channel 4 and no, ITV it have, uh, have spoken, both ITV and Channel 4 have spoken about the fact that the government is spending more money with them. And that is a good thing, particularly at a time when Channel 4 particularly has been hit very, very hard by coronavirus. You know, its its advertising revenue has halved in the last couple of months and it's got to find savings of £150 million. Pounds. It's furloughed 100 staff. Um, government spending money with these broadcasters uh, is important right now.
1: What do you make, Liz, of, of Channel Four's efforts actually? Because they've been the most out of the public service broadcast seems to me, they've been the most agile, they've really like ripped up their schedule, done something different. Um, But we've seen with uh, Steph McGovern's Lunchtime Channel 4 show, for example, uh, launched from her home during lockdown. You know, we're one month into that and she's basically said, look, enough of this already. I want my house back. Let's do this when we can get a studio.
3: Well, that's what we hear. I I also wonder because the the ratings haven't been fantastic for the show. And I think that's a great shame because I think she's... They've been terrible.
2: Sorry, just to be clear. Well, let's clarify. (laughs) So it's
1: 160,000 viewers a day, right? And of course, people turning to streaming as well, Jake, which is something Kevin Ligo was talking about. Uh, as well, wasn't it, in that Edinburgh TV thing? You know, in peak time, more and more people doing video on demand.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think just just to kind of segue from that point we we're making around Channel 4, I think Channel 4's short-term strategy was excellent to have this lockdown academy and be being really agile in the kind of programme that it was uh, showing on television. But the long-term strategy is now starting to become clear. Broadcasters need to move away from this reactive content and be giving viewers... Um, uh, things that they're more used to, bigger, more ambitious shows, because ultimately, if they don't, they will lose out to the streamers. And that's what Kevin Liger was talking about. You know, at a time when broadcasters are going to have to be showing more repeats because uh, uh, they haven't been able to make the shows that they want to make, um, ambition has to be raised when things start to return to normal. Otherwise, people are going to get out of the habit of watching telly.
3: I think it's really interesting what Jake's saying about people want big big items that they can watch for a long time massive dramas and things like that look at the success day of twin on BBC on a Saturday night and that was a completely compelling drama very different from all this uh, the, the corona based stuff took you out of yourself it was it was an excellent buy I think it was a really a really good program in the news you're getting all the stuff you want to know about corona the rest of the time you want a bit of escapism and you want something big and i think that's probably where channel 4 being so corona conscious has, has it's not been the right move well let's talk
1: about some of the content people are choosing to stream now because it's not just uh, the big netflix amazon prime style box sets anymore it's also frank Hollywood's finest, isn't it? It's the huge movies that were going to debut in the cinemas that are now being available to rent. And it was Trolls that really blazed the trail for that.
4: Yeah, who would have thought that the story that I would have covered the most in 2020 would be Trolls World Tour. But that's where we're (laughs) at right now. Because the thing is that's really interesting. So to just give some background on that is that, you know, Universal, which is owned by Comcast, uh, last month said that they're going to put a lot of the movies that were playing in theaters when theaters are still somewhat minimally open, things like Invisible Man, The Hunt, uh, they were going to give it to PVOD, or Premium Video On Demand. And they made news by saying that Trolls World Tour, which was going to open on April 10th in theaters, or at least was supposed to before theaters closed, was going to play day and date, which means in theaters and On digital the same day obviously theaters Mm -hmm. closed down so went directly to digital but it's been a big success for them I mean they were they uh, it was reported earlier this week that they brought in close to a hundred million dollars in rental fees which is very good for uh, for that but let's have some caveats there people are stuck home I would watch you know Dwayne The Rock Johnson read a phone book at this point so like (laughs) people are starving for content uh, but at the same time, what happened was in that reporting, uh, NBC Universal Jeff Shell went out of his way to say, you know, that he was incredibly proud of how it all kind of went down and had this very interesting quote in which he said that he was uh, remarks about putting movies once things reopen on both formats. This really angered theater owners like AMC, which is the world 's largest theater chain, to the point where AMC said we will never we are banning Universal's movies even when we reopen uh, that means everything from Fast and Furious Nine to Jurassic world to minions these are billion dollar blockbuster movies, but it also opened this debate about what does the theatrical experience and theatrical business look like after this, and that's where we 're at right now is trying to figure out. How are movie theaters going to play? How are we going to watch movies? Is there a market for watching premium films that normally would be in theaters at home? It looks like there is a market, but I wouldn't count out theaters just yet. And what's the economic model there, Jake?
1: Because uh, if you're making a movie available to rent through streaming-only services, presumably you get to keep more revenue of, of the total money that comes in because you're not paying for the overheads of the cinema and the, the distribution and the publicity and all that stuff. But at the same time, my understanding is you, you sort of do... You know, Trolls is, is the exception that proves the rule. You sort of do need your big theatrical box office opening weekend to get your money back on some of these massive $100 million-plus budget titles.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that's the argument the exhibitors all make, that it's absolutely essential to a movie's success that you um, continue to show it in cinemas. I think this is a fascinating spat which kind of cuts to the heart of the future of cinema. Um, it's very rare that you see huge rifts like this play out in such a public way, public way, and it'll be fascinating to see how it ends up. I think there's probably a bit of brinksmanship going on here. I mean, theoretically, if uh, AMC continues with its stance, um, it won't be able to carry James Bond here in the UK through its Odeon cinemas. And I just can't conceive of a scenario where... Podian is not showing James Bond when it's released uh, later this year.
4: The thing, the thing that's really interesting is that, you know, digital platforms take about 80%. The theaters take about 50%. So AMC knows it doesn't have a ton of leverage right now because these studios can eventually just go, all right, we're just going to put everything onto streaming or digital. But at the same time, the studios can't necessarily do that too because you're never going to get the type of, money that you can get from a global release you got to remember the last fast and furious movie made 1.2 billion dollars that's not going you're not going to get close to that in digital at least not right now it's going to be a while not to mention the amount of marketing it takes to tell people where this movie is streaming where you can buy it how much you can buy it and it eats into the home video uh money as well because if you're renting trolls world tour for 20 dollars, 20 american dollars Then you're not going to then buy it again. You're gonna, you're, you're, you've already seen it at home. You, you know, you can make money. From the theater. And then if you like the movie enough, you buy it when you're home. That's a double dip for the studio. So it's this it's this kind of stupid chicken game of chicken going on right now, which is easy to do because there's no movies playing and there's no theaters open. It'll be much (laughs) different, I think, in about six months when, you know, or come November when No Time to Die opens around the world. Then we're actually going to see if the rubber meets the road.
1: Liz, there's also the issue that we've had a hundred years of being brainwashed (laughs) about the cinematic experience, you know, and I I sort of feel like, imagine a scenario that Jake says he can't, where James Bond isn't available in my local Odeon, but it is available in, you know, my local View cinema, and it is also available to stream at home, I'd go to the cinema to watch it, because it's a massive movie, and I've been trained, whatever equipment I've got at home the best experience is going to be in the cinema with other people, with the sound system and everything else.
3: There's a lot of things going on here. I mean, I remember when we were told, like, in the 60s, the cinema was dead, you know, everybody was watching TV, there'd be no cinemas, and they'd come back and uh, lots of people do go to the cinema. It's really really very interesting, I think, because what we're seeing here is similar to what we're seeing in retail, isn't it, where where shops are saying, well, we don't want to have a a sort of face-to-face experience shopping, everything's going to be done online. And this is a chance for everybody to revisit delivery systems, and it's happening not just in entertainment, but in other things as well so I think that what could be happening here is a sort of um, a rehearsing of this debate Uh, I think it's very odd that these big figures are having this spat I mean these people are absolutely surrounded by lawyers and PR men and so on why are PR people I beg your pardon so why is it that why is it that that they are behaving in this way so publicly It's, it's quite entertaining for the rest of us but but why are they doing this I think it's a sort of rehearsal of what's going to happen in the future and they're playing it out
1: and Frank, do you think that there'll be some cooperation between the major Hollywood studios to coordinate schedules once cinemas do reopen? Because it's going to be, I guess, the government's decision. I, I know there are state by state decisions. Georgia's already opened some of its movie theaters, hasn't it? But I mean, basically, it needs every state in America to say, OK, we're opening again. And then it sort of needs all the studios to get together, doesn't it? And say, yes, we're, we're doing this. We're going to back the idea that people go to the cinema to see our films? Because there is a health risk. There's a public health risk to do that.
4: Yeah, there definitely is. And I think that it can't work with one can't work without the other. And they both had to figure out the thing that a lot of people aren't talking about right now, which is the psychological scarring of this. Are people going to want to go to a theater and sit potentially next to people in the dark for two hours who are coughing or sneezing or anything like that? I think ultimately where we're heading here, and again, this is the best estimation I can make, I think that, what we're going to head to is a reopening at limited capacity. You're going to be potentially having to wear a mask. You're going to not be sitting next to someone. It might be sits like six seats between people. And since like the movies are rolling out very limitedly, we could get to a point, say in July when Christopher Nolan's Tenet comes out where you have a situation where an AMC theater or a Regal theater or a Cineworld theater is playing just tenant in, say, 10 of their screens while the other five screens are being deeply cleaned. That potentially could be where we're headed. Whether that works, whether people return is debatable and something that we'll have to see as time goes on. But I don't think that the movie business and the the movie theater business can work without the studios and the theaters coming together, which makes this spat even more kind of ridiculous right now. But, you know, it's I I explained the AMC-Universal split as like a, Couple who publicly fights, and then three weeks later they're back together, and you're like, Didn't you guys break up? So that's that's where we're at. at Yeah, that's
3: exactly what I think. There's something contrived about the whole thing. But the other interesting thing I think is if people are wearing masks, they won't be able to eat popcorn. So there's always a silver lining.
1: Well, we could see the return of the drive in movie theater as well, couldn't it?
4: We've actually seen a little bit of a boost of uh, uh, drive in theaters kind of coming back. I, I just, you know, I'm bullish on the theatrical experience because I think, you know, it might not be as big as it was, say, in you know, 1995 or something like that, but I think people are still going to want to have a way to go out and experience the movies with people, get out of their house every now and again in the same way that there's a difference between watching you know a game on television and watching a sporting event in person. It's going to be different. It's going to have to be more about the experience, more about customer loyalty and I think we're going to have to, I think the studios and the theaters are going to have to figure out how to figure out the theatrical window so that we don't have to wait 90 days to see a new movie come out and watch it at home i think the big blockbusters like james bond and fast and furious and all of these are going to play in theaters first and then we'll see how long it takes for them to actually go to digital
1: okay well you don't have to wait 90 days for part two of the media podcast we'll be back with more media news after this Welcome back to the Media Podcast. Liz, Frank, and Jake are still with me. Uh, let's talk about Times Radio now. They have announced another raft of talent who will be joining the DAB network this summer. Um, Jake, what do you make of the lineup? Asma Mir is going to be co hosting Breakfast with Stig Abel. John Pinar's on Drive Time. We knew that already. But Cathy Newman from Channel 4 News is going to be doing Drive on Friday. Um, what do you think?
2: Uh, it's a, an impressive lineup of presenters. Um It'll be really interesting to see what happens when it launches uh, later this summer. Um, I mean, there's still a lot of language around it taking on the BBC and being seen as a rival to Radio 4. Um, and I'm with uh, Matt Deegan, the podcast regular, and he says that uh, if beating the BBC is the measure... Our then resident to, radio bore. Yeah, <laughs> if beating BBC <laughs> is the measure of success and it's going to fail and singularly fail... But if it wants, if it's got lower, if it's got more modest ambitions to, you know, act as a megaphone for the Times journalism, and to uh, increase uh, subscriptions to the Times then it could serve a really useful purpose for, for New Yeah,
1: UK. well, let me uh, give you my own slightly franker quote from Matt Deegan's blog, Liz. He wrote this week that if taking on Radio 4 ends up being the core aim of Times Radio, the strategy is officially batshit mental. Agree? Disagree?
3: I think that's absolutely right. I think it's really funny and really right. I myself have been involved in launches of two major media um, platforms and also joined Sky News very soon after it was launched and it's very easy to get totally wrapped up in your product and think it's absolutely great and people are going to flock to it and and give you know false predictions in perhaps you haven't done all your market research or you feel very passionate about it you're sure it's going to work yada yada I'm not saying they haven't done all of those things but I'm I'm not saying they haven't done their market research and so on but it does strike me as as a dangerous step to take if this is a Barker channel for the Times newspaper, that's something very different from a radio station in its own right, and and it would have to complement the paper, and, and you, you'd have to have sort of tr- uh, people trans migrating from the paper in, in a way that I I don't necessarily see it happen happening. I tend to think of the Times reader as someone who is a Radio Four person, and I, I can't see them going to this radio station for for its own sake, and I can't see how it enhances in- the paper. Um, I just. Perhaps I just feel nervy because of personal experience about launches, it's so many fail.
1: What's the one that it's reminding you of, Liz? Be specific.
3: Um, Well, I think when we did GMTV, we had very, um, really over positive um, thoughts about who would transfer from TVAM and what new people we would take on and all of the good things that we could do. And then we had a regulatory system that really didn't help because it opened up the market to Channel 4 breakfast and so on, the big breakfast. I mean, things can come at you that you don't expect, and I, and there are costs involved. And also, I think what Matt Deegan said about about Virgin Radio with um, with Chris Evans, which um, did very well, was done very well, relatively speaking, but it's still a little fraction of the Radio Four audience. It's it's a dangerous move, I think. And I don't want to sound so negative about it because it's great to think of people starting up radio, but there's something about this that I think is a little confused. Is it the Barker Channel or is it in its own right?
1: Well, I suppose the, the confusing element there, Jake, is that none of these presenters that they've announced actually have columns in the Times. I mean, maybe they will in due course. Um, but th- there were people that they could have put right front and shed- centre of the schedule. Actually, I, I corrected myself. Matt Chorley does have well, I was going to say Matt Chorley is going to be a bit box, okay. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs>
2: All
1: right. But still, they could have had David Aronovich. They could have had Giles Corrin. They could have had Caitlin Moran. They haven't gone with those names. They've gone with experience, more experienced radio names.
2: Yeah, but there's no reason why those more established columnists won't be contributing on a regular basis.
1: I mean, Frank, from, from your position in the US, does it seem kind of amusing that uh, we're being a bit churlish about the idea of anyone taking on the BBC? I mean, over there in the US, you know, the idea of a newspaper, if the New York Times wanted to launch its own radio station, it would seem like an obvious and straightforward thing to do to drive subscribers. And you wouldn't be thinking, well, can they beat the biggest? It would be like, can they create a new entrant?
4: Yeah, I mean, I I would look at it from my point of view as being like, that's a way for them to grab more readers, grab more viewers, grab more listeners. I mean, that doesn't sound very outrageous to me, but that's just me being on the other side of the pond.
2: But also the interesting thing is that it's the Times itself that's been framing it in this way. You know, there was a write-up in the Times about these new presenters, and it used language like taking on the BBC and seen as a direct rival to the B- uh, to, to Radio Four. You know, if it's if it's doing that itself, then it, it's obvious that other people are going to make similar comparisons. Yeah,
1: and what well, they haven't announced yet, Liz, but it seems to me are an obvious part of the puzzle as they uh actually launched the station in the summer are radio 4 type commissions uh you know sort of half hour programs returning series broadening in that i mean at the moment this just seems like kind of upmarket talk radio but it's obviously not going to be just that and then they obviously are going for a radio 4 audience
3: well that's a big expense and and I, I don't really get the business model for this if it is as i keep saying a bucket channel for the times that's a very different thing from a radio station in its own right and you know as, again, Matt Deegan says, there are so many people that try these, these radio stations and fail. I, I don't know. I, look, I, I don't want to sound too negative, And I'm not a radio expert, but it does make me feel a, a bit uncomfortable. I don't quite see how it's going to make it. OK, let's stick with radio just for a moment,
1: because the BBC are now offering their news bulletins to commercial rivals who might be struggling with production during the pandemic. Uh, Jake, do you imagine many commercial stations are going to be queuing up to take BBC bulletins?
2: I don't know the question to that. The answer to that question, honestly, I mean, I think I think it's a for the BBC to have made this offer. Again, I think it, it suggests that there may be the appetite for this. Uh, I mean, the BBC itself has warned that some of its local... Um, services could be at risk during uh, the coronavirus that hasn't transpired and it clearly has confidence in uh, the work that it's producing to to make this offer to radio stations I think um, it, it's part of the sort of good feeling around the BBC at the moment that uh, it's providing these public services it, it's plugging gaps where commercial operators might be struggling and um, is you know, providing a proper service to local audiences.
1: I guess the question, Liz, is whether this relationship would then continue once we're out of the quarantine times. Uh, I mean, at the moment, particularly for community radio stations that either are run by volunteers or are furloughed everybody, it makes sense to take a BBC news bulletin. But then at what point do you say, right, we need to start producing our own again, and we need to put our own expense into that? Is it something that the, the, the publicly funded broadcasters should be propping up? Is it good PR for the BBC? Where does it end?
3: Well, you're talking about a relationship between commercial radio stations and the BBC. And we don't really know that the- there is a relationship when I mean, ken Macquarie, the director of bbc nations and regions said we have been approached by a number of stations but there's no we have no idea which stations they are and and we don't know if there is genuinely a demand for this or if this is the BBC BBC making an offer which makes the BBC look good so I don't know and I can't imagine unless they're absolutely desperate a commercial um, radio station taking this on wouldn't it be more likely that they would do one composite bulletin for a whole lot of stations and they've gone down to some extent anyway I I think this is a little bit odd Um, and the idea of this going on in the future, I mean, there is, of course, local TV, which has got to deal with the BBC, but it, that actually bizarrely is the other way around. Local television local um, television is supposed to provide material to, to the BBC, which doesn't really happen. Um, the, to have the BBC providing bulletins for commercial local radio stations doesn't seem to me to be something that the commercial local radio stations would want. From the point of view of the BBC, they are something that's funded by um, the license fee, it's funded nationally, it doesn't have any commercial funding, and the um, radio stations are going to be far more vulnerable at this time. So given that it's paid for by the taxpayer, as it were the license fee payer, perhaps the BBC should offer to support these commercial organisations. But I think a commercial organisation that accepts that would put themselves in a very difficult position.
1: Another thing the BBC is doing is supporting the nation's children uh, as they're locked down and away from school by announcing some big celebrity names fronting educational content on the bite-sized portion of their website. So these are big names over here in the UK, Frank, like Sir David Attenborough and uh, Professor Brian Cox. Um, We've got Ed Balls, former Labour Chancellor, doing maths lessons. Um, Do you think this is sort of celebrities doing their bit or do you think there will be a backlash in the sense of talent and this is the same in Hollywood as it is over here in the UK sort of just constantly filming themselves at home looking a little bit needy I mean there comes a point where as a viewer you're sort of like put it away like you just retreat for a while
4: Yeah, it's been really, really interesting to see how celebrities have kind of had to adjust to this new world and how that's kind of worked out. I mean, because we think of when we think of celebrities, it's very prim, very polished. Like, you know, you don't get to really see behind the veil like you just basically see what they want you to see. But now, you know, I've been telling people one of the most fun games I've been doing lately is looking in celebrities' homes and seeing like what is behind them and and what kind of books are they reading on those bookshelves. And things of that nature. So I, I think that, you know, uh, initially, I think a lot of celebrities had some backlash because they just they were trying to react in a way that they thought would be normal. But then as soon as this kind of became more and more a new kind of way of life you've you've seen celebrities and I'll use an example of like the late night shows in, in, uh, in America you know people like Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel they've all had to do their shows from home and initially that was kind of a rough and tumble type of situation but as it's gone on, it's really gotten smoothed out and it's really worked. The same thing even for something like Saturday Night Live in, in America. It originally had a remote show and then eventually last week they had their second remote show and it was one of the best shows they've had all season. So I think celebrities are trying to figure it out. And I, I think that uh, what you were saying about the educational portions of this is actually really heartening. I think it's really something that could actually be you know beneficial to celebrities and to how they're perceived in public going forward as this kind of drags out. I think the
1: perception issue is, is part of the cynicism around it, though, isn't it, Jake? I mean, to an eight-year-old, it doesn't matter whether it's a really good maths teacher teaching you maths or Ed Balls. <laughs> it only matters to the media that are reporting on the fact that people are doing it to drive people to go to the website to check it out. Do you think they should be using their big names in that way?
2: Are you saying you wouldn't want to get science lessons from Brian Cox? <laughs> I mean, I'm I saying think, an eight-year-old think, might not. Yeah, might not you might, care particularly. You, you, you might want to learn Spanish from uh, from Sergio Agüero if you're an eight-year-old and um, you're and you're a, a mad football fan. Uh, I think. I mean, it, it, it's partly aimed at the children. I think it's probably more aimed at the parents um, mm. and uh, a, a tool to get the parents. Uh, to get, To get the parents watching, who and then turn and get and then in turn engage their children with what's going on uh, in the bite size videos. Um, so I think it's quite smart in a way, um, and um, like Frank was saying, it's you know it's a real public service. It's the BBC doing what it does best, and um, and you know it should be providing these educational tools for children when schools are closed.
1: Liz do you think the right decision though to kind of silo it off on the website you know here's the educational stuff and basically keep CBBs and CBBC dedicated to entertainment I mean obviously there's educational values through all of those shows but it's it's not a pure lesson.
3: No I think that's very wise to put it on the website and to separate it off from the entertainment um, side of the, the children's provision what I would like to say is that I think that this is great and why not but it's really a drop in the ocean I'm I'm the chair of a School governors' board, and actually getting material to children in packs that they can um, they can utilise, and recognising that so many of your children don't necessarily have access to first class Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi, or you know they don't have enough devices in the home, and so on. There are so many other problems to, to deal with that this is this is nice, but it's in no way fundamental.
1: OK, just briefly, finally, on the BBC, can we talk about their 50-50 gender parity project? Liz, has this come out of some of the work that you've been doing? It is about female contributors on, on news programmes, isn't it? Uh,
3: no, it's not about news programmes. It's about all factual programmes, as I understand it. And uh, it's much more recent that we, we've been doing the expert women project since um, 2012. And in fact, a little bit before that, though not so formally. And this is a very different um Venture. What fifty fifty does is ask for a fifty fifty gender representation on um, factual programs, but it, um, it well, it's it, not
1: very different in terms of methodology, though, is it? They are literally counting women on screen, just as you've been.
3: They're counting women in a different way. So we are counting women who are experts or authority figures, and they're just counting women. And they're also not including what they might call players—people that um, that the, the editors of news programs say that they have to—they um, have to put on
1: yeah like the prime minister for example the prime minister
3: or the people or whatever whereas we count everybody so it's very different what i always say is that 50 50 is great but if you have a 50 50 system then the magician and his glamorous assistant are 50 50 but in fact the magician and his glamorous assistant are very different in the significance on the program and the significance socially so we count expert women and authority figures and the the sort of things that we are coming up with are rather different from 50 50. it's good if you look at the two together it's very good to look and say, oh, yes, we've got you know, 50% of the, of the guests on this programme are women. That is obviously a good thing. But you also need to look at what those guests are representing. If it's just men and their wives, then it's not really doing gen- gender equality any favours.
1: OK, let's tackle the tabloids next, because the Duke and Duchess of Sussex uh, handed four British titles their own version of a Dear John letter last week. Um, Jake, this was The Sun, The Daily Mail, The Mirror and The Express, and... Pretty unprecedented, isn't it, in the UK for members of the royal family to take such affirmative action against the tabloids?
2: Yes. I mean, look, I, first of all, I fully respect their desire for privacy, um, particularly given that they're now you know, independent of the public purse. But there was something a little bit chilling about this letter. Um, and I think the bottom line is I don't think it will make the blindest bit of difference either. Journalists will keep calling them. Uh, and keep asking them about stories and the question I would ask is is it the best attitude to so-called fake news uh, they're calling it fake news to ignore fake news or uh, you know uh, allegations that are being put to you um, and then not you know taking up your right of reply I don't think that's the best way Mm. of handling fake news uh, I think the yeah so they've said they'll, is they'll is have it, a policy
1: of zero engagement from their people, which yeah yes. which means that they can 't deny things that they might want on the record are untrue
2: yes that, exactly uh, but like I say, I think journalists will keep calling and I mean they 're saying that they 'll deal with journalists through their lawyers well, the journalists will just phone their lawyers for comment they won 't phone their spokespeople um, and the other thing about this, they keep they keep saying that it's a deluge of fake news, but The Sun has been on the money with some of the big stories about their personal affairs in the last few months.
1: Like the fact that we're going to leave the royal family.
2: Exactly. And, um, you know, they've got it right. Um, so maybe... May, I'm sure there is a lot of nastiness and... Um, ill-informed, inaccurate reporting about Harry and Meghan. Absolutely, I'm sure that's the case. But that doesn't mean that they can't, they shouldn't engage when there are legitimate stories about their future. Frank, can
1: you shine any light for us on Sunshine Sacks, which is the PR outfit that they've employed in the States to represent their affairs now that they're no longer represented by the palace?
4: It's a very notable PR company here and it's very interesting they would do it because when you think of Sunshine Sacks you think of celebrities and it just kind of shows that that uh that transformation I guess you could call it from being royal celebrities to being celebrity celebrities is kind of underway at least on the state side.
1: What do you make of uh, Harry following Meghan into TV? He's going to be introducing an episode of Thomas the Tank Engine shortly.
4: (laughs) I, I think it's really interesting. And I think that, you know, there's a lot there's it, it's kind of obvious to say there's always been a lot of attention around the royal family. That has always been the case. But in the States, I would argue that there hasn't been this much attention around a couple like this since the days of Princess Diana. I, I would make that argument that, you know, with Harry and Meghan kind of moving into a more kind of uh, less royal, more celebrity type of uh Profession, I think that you see more of an attention going forward. I mean, there was that video that was shown. Uh, I think it was late last year uh, where Harry was talking to Disney CEO Bob Iger about Megan does voice work, and then uh, you know then we see that Megan's doing voice work on an elephants documentary on Disney Plus. It's really quite interesting, and I think that. It just kind of it it brings them more forth in the American culture because now it's less you know focused on that is these are this is a couple from a royal family from a different country they've become almost a little bit more Americanized through their celebrity which is quite interesting
1: Liz do you think that their behavior recently is going to piss off the palace more or piss off Fleet Street more because Fleet Street are going to continue to report on them whether with their corporation or not it's the Queen's people I imagine that have spent you know, the last 30 years, creating a very delicate relationship where the tabloids can report in a certain way about Harry and Wills and their schooling and his time in the army and all this stuff. And and they've just turned around and said, everything you wrote about us was a lie.
3: Yeah, I mean, the ecology of this particular relationship has been deeply upset by the way Harry and Meghan have behaved. On the other hand, I I can really appreciate, um, I think a lot of us who've had bad experiences of the tabloid press I mean I had a bad experience of the tabloid press but it was a long time ago but it it does injure you and you do feel that you you are just completely victimised by these people and I can quite understand why they've behaved like they have there's a certain sort of hoity-toitiness about it it's probably would have been better just not to have engaged with them and not sent a letter I and mean, that's like drawing attention to the feud, and probably not terribly wise but it's sort of understandable I and mean, in the end the difficulty for them is if they want to be celebrities then they're going to have to engage with the tabloid in some way because that's what celebrities are all about Websites, the tabloids that, you know, it's the attention that they're going to need. They're going to need the oxygen of attention and they may well lose everything by trying to have it both ways.
1: And Liz, just finally, before the media quiz, give us some good news uh, regarding the Jewish Chronicle, which faced closure a few weeks ago. They've now found a buyer.
3: Yeah, it's really good. And it's been quite messy, but they've been bailed out and they aren't going to have to um, combine with the Jewish News, which is the other great uh, Jewish um, press organ, if you like, in this country. And the Chronicle is something that's, iconic really and it's the oldest jewish newspaper that we've had in the uk also Stephen pollard i have to say years ago Stephen pollard wrote something really nasty and unkind about me but i'm going to reply by saying he's a very good journalist and i like what he writes largely when it's not about me and um i think and he's
1: keeping his job as editor
3: yeah, yeah. i think that's great so it's, it is good news and it's so good to see a newspaper title being retained um there is
1: just time you'll be pleased to know all of you to play our legendary media quiz Today, we play HBO or No. Ahead of the launch of yet another premium subscription streaming service, HBO Max, coming to American Screens on May the 27th, we've been given a tease of what new programming we might expect to be available on Sky here in the UK. So, I'm going to give you the title and premise of an original programming premiering on HBO Max in May. You just have to tell me if it's genuine or if we made it up. Okay, is the following HBO or No? a kids craft competition called Craftopia, hosted by YouTuber DIY. Liz, that's genuine. It is. It is HBO. Uh, host Lauren challenges a series of crafty children to make amazing creations for the chance to win $5,000. Here is programme number two. HBO or no? A scripted comedy called Happy Wife, Happy Life, starring Anna Farris and Terry Crews. Liz, Jake? no. <laughs> Liz pipped you there, Jake. Uh, and Liz, you are correct. That is no. Uh, that was made up, and it was inspired by the new Anna Kendrick vehicle, Love Life. Program number three, HBO or no? An underground ballroom dance competition series called Legendary. Jake. Jake.
2: HBO. HBO.
1: (laughs) Correct. Uh, This series sparked controversy over the role presenter and actor Jamila Jamil would play, but the trailer promises big production values and the shiniest floor ever. And finally, uh, the unscripted reunion of the cast of Friends. HBO or no? Frank. Frank. That's real.
0: It is HBO.
1: And due to arrive later in the year, once cast and crew are allowed to be in the same room together again. Now, I know, Frank, that CNN is, is part of the same conglomerate, but... Do you think it's going to be as big a program as they reckon it's going to be? Like, Friends, if they started making Friends again, obviously huge... But a reunion where they sit around and say, wasn't it great? I don't know if I need to see that.
4: Uh, I'm saying this, and I'm not just saying this because I work at the same company that is making HBO Max. I 100% think that's going to be a hit because Friends is just the thing on streaming. People love Friends. Just to see those actors together, I think will actually be a quite boon for, for HBO Max. I think they'll. I think it's going to be a big hit for them.
1: And good news for Sky subscribers, Jake. That actually, I guess, a lot of this, thanks to the deal they have with Sky, is going to be coming to people that have got Sky Q for free or, or not for more on top of their current subscription. They won't have to get another
2: one. Yeah, I mean, it's great news. Obviously, that we're going to see some of this, and um, you know, that deal uh, with HBO has been in place for a long time, and it's served Sky really well. Um, I think the Friends um, reunion not happening because of coronavirus is a is a real blow actually to HBO Max because it would have acted as a big hook um, on launch for people to come and check out the service. Um, And obviously it's not going to have that now.
1: But, I mean, Liz, you can't really get a better time of the world, really, to launch a streaming service than when everyone's locked down in their house. I mean, they are giving themselves the best possible opportunity.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Look what happened to Disney, you know? They're taking off, as we talked right at the start of the podcast. So it is a good time. Um, I really am amused, by the way, by... I think it's on ITV. They're going to re- rerun some, some ancient old football tournament. And uh, the ad for it, the promo, is really funny because it says, uh, we're going to do this. Why are we doing this? And this voice <laughs> says... Because we're all stuck at home. (laughs) I would watch the Friends reunion.
1: Well, you can go off and watch a streaming service right now, Liz, but of course not the Friends reunion because it doesn't exist yet. And congratulations on winning the quiz. I won! Yep. Uh, thanks to Frank Palotta, Jake Cantor and Liz Howell uh, and thank you to you you can catch up with previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website themediapodcast.com whilst you're there you might fancy taking out a voluntary subscription to help keep us going all year round head to themediapodcast.com and choose a voluntary donation that suits you we'd be ever so grateful Gov uh, I've been Ollie Mann the producer Rebecca Grisdale, sherry The Media Podcast is a PPM production and until next time bye bye
0: Bye-bye.